Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by Hillsdale College. Now in its 175th year, Hillsdale is a truly independent institution where learning is prized and intellectual enthusiasm is valued. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post. Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, oh yes, the temporary number, 866-505-4626. 866-505-4626. Some of you are not going to like the program this evening. Just giving you a heads up. I spent a lot of part of my day really thinking through what's taking place. Trying to gather as much research I can. Try to apply my noggin to what's going on. I am gravely concerned now with more and more of these governors dictating that individuals are not to leave their homes, that we have now stepped over a red line. I'm also concerned that we are embracing big government socialist policies in the belief that this will spur economic activity while we're shutting down big swaths of the economy. I don't know how much longer this can go on. We can hand everybody $3,000, $5,000, But it's not going to fix what's taking place. This is pretty much all that Congress knows to do. More government, more spending, more borrowing, more subsidizing, more regulating. Oh, and abortion, of course. So I'm going to present to you a number of arguments that are out there but are getting no attention. We are being smothered by the scientists and the medical experts. And by the way, I want to hear from the scientists and the medical experts. And by the way, I think this is a very, very serious virus. Now, I have to say these things over and over again because my words will get twisted and cherry-picked that Mark Levin doesn't believe this is serious. I do. But I'm concerned that we have an imbalance now. And I understand that the Democrat Party today, that the media today, that includes some new media, don't really give a damn about the debt spending turning the Constitution inside out, or your individual liberties. I also understand when I listen to these brilliant doctors like Dr. Fauci and others, they're not focused on any of this either. They are myopically and correctly focused on the health issues. And they're very, very crucial. But they don't set economic policy either. So we need to look at the health also of what's taking place. I want to get to these four senators, too, who somehow knew to sell all this stock 
right before the stock market crash, and I'm going to have some harsh words about that. We touched on it yesterday, but now there's more senators. And this cannot be tolerated under any circumstances. So there's a lot to get to, but I want to stick with this. I do not want to be misunderstood. So when you read things on Media Matters or Mediaite or other left-wing propaganda outfits, ignore them. You can listen to this program in its entirety right now, or you can always go back to marklevinshow.com, our mothership website, and listen to it there. You don't need interpreters, and you don't need cherry pickers. We're out to make political points and that sort of thing. There's an excellent piece at Conservative Review by Daniel Horowitz, who is quite brilliant. Now, you've heard the the people banging the drums and the pots and pans, populists, nationalists, socialists, whatever they are, demanding more spending, bigger and bigger government, got to go big, that's the phrase I hear. These are know-nothings. They reject history, they reject knowledge. These are know-nothings. They don't care about the Constitution so much. They don't care about your liberties. They don't even care about the private sector. I care about all those things. As well as the health and welfare of the American people. And Horowitz writes, How can Congress treat the fallout of a problem it has failed to define and whose solutions are helping to drive the problem? What is the point of bankrupting our future for a stimulus when California is shutting down the entire state and now New York? And Illinois this weekend. And the Trump administration is considering doing so for the entire nation. This is what we hear. We are entitled to a robust debate and some answers. Politicians and the media are telling the public to be prudent and not to panic. But everything they are saying and implementing is sowing panic. And they are now contemplating actions that reflect more of a bubonic plague dynamic. Their entire legislative approach is about feeding on panic and using the crisis to immediately implement socialism before we even know the scope of the problem and can more effectively target solutions. Bailing out industries and indiscriminately sending out $1,200 checks to every person in this country, even those fully employed, is way too premature and doesn't address the problem at hand. There's no economy to stimulate until we solve the logistical problem of getting people back to work. That requires using better scientific data to more effectively localize the quarantines to the places and to the people who need to be home and get as many people working as possible. We need a strategy of containment more in line with the South Korea model than with the European model. In the meantime, we should be suspending different forms of taxation and offering interest-free loans to incentivize people to work and maintain personal businesses. We already passed paid leave for those who can't work. And those who are laid off are already eligible for unemployment benefits, which we should work on expediting. Aside from that, sending out checks to everyone makes no sense. For starters, while many are unable to work, a lot of people are still receiving 100% of their salary by working from home or through other arrangements. Why should we pay those people? For example, a family of five like mine who rely solely on telecommunicating, which is not shut down, would receive $3,900 in cash. 
I mean, I'll gladly take it or donate it to charity, but does it really make any sense? Instead, incentivize more people by slashing taxes. He's saying incentivize more people to work from home even. As for those in need, $1,200 per person is both too much and too little. It's too much in the macro fiscal sense because it'll bankrupt our nation with crushing interest payments on the debt. But it's also way too little for, those, for most families if government is really warning about months of shutdowns, even up to 18 months. If we go the European route instead of the Korean route in terms of shutdowns, we'll have to mail out $50,000 checks. Which leads to the main point. Shouldn't the legislative response focus on most effectively containing the outbreak while getting people back to work rather than legislating for a major assumption of indefinite shutdowns that seems to be disproven by data from countries that have already gone through this? All the Asian countries, such as Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan, have already, quote-unquote, bent the curve with less economic pain. Even in Washington state, which was the inception and epicenter of the epidemic in the United States, the number of new cases appear to be declining. Washington began with the disruptions and distancing before everyone else. And while the fallout is severe and the deaths are more than any other state, the state is beginning to see a downward trajectory. Then there's geography. Most of the outbreaks are clustered in urban areas and most pronounced in a few parts of the country. This is largely going to depend on decisions by governors and local officials. But not every part of the country requires a severe shutdown. More than half the cases and over 60% of fatalities so far have been in three states, New York, Washington State, and California. And even then, they're very localized. That's why resources and the balance of quarantine versus economic activity should be targeted. He's saying target these areas. For example, 56% of the Washington State cases are in King County. And when the two now neighboring counties are factored in, they account for almost all the cases. 85% of the deaths were in King County, of which more than half were in one nursing home. One nursing home. Almost all the deaths are in Metro Seattle. As of Tuesday, 56% of the New York cases were in New York City. Nearly all of them in Metro New York City, with the exception of a known anomalous outbreak in Westchester County. In California and other western states, the numbers are very much driven by the homeless population. Roughly half the cases in San Francisco are among the homeless. We need to tailor the quarantine to where it's needed most, and that will dictate the economic outcomes. Thus, there's no reason for Pennsylvania's Governor Tom Wolf to be taking the prudent distancing a step further and shutting all, quote, non-life-sustaining, unquote, businesses in the entire state when there's only been one fatality statewide. Most of the counties in Pennsylvania have no cases reported, so we're going to shut every store in rural Pennsylvania but still have outbound flights from Seattle? He's saying you're still going to have flights from Seattle to Philadelphia, Seattle to Pittsburgh, and so forth? The decision by California's Governor Newsom to essentially put everyone in every county in the state under house arrest 
is just appalling. South Korea got the epidemic under control in less than a month without shutting down its entire economy. The country went into crisis mode around February 20 and began bending the trajectory uh, after the first week in March. Yes, it's possible it could take longer in some parts of our country, but not in others, and certainly not for 18 months. So why is our government panicking to legislate under that assumption? Because policymakers are pandering to industries, and they're also trying to use the crisis to implement dependency-inducing and liberty-squelching policies they've long sought anyway. Look at what came out of the House of Representatives. Shocking. And 90 senators voted for it. Only eight Republicans voted against it. Perhaps I'm not taking this seriously enough, he says. Well, here's a rule of thumb. The government should treat the rest of our economy with the same plans to get it restarted again as it is treating refugee resettlement. The State Department announced its intention to bring in refugees again beginning on April 7. While in California is contemplating an indefinite house arrest of Americans, and the administration is looking potentially to do this nationally. Are you kidding me? Bringing in immigrants? With any reason, he's saying. While American citizens are having to stay home? What do you think of what Horowitz wrote there? I'll be right back. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning. But what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue, that having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale college student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now, to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com, levinforhillsdale.com. So another crazy idea bouncing around there. I mentioned it the other day by the big government forces in the, I mean, both parties. And that is that your federal government would take an equity position in companies that get loans. Excuse me? The federal government would take an equity position? You know what? You understand what that means, right, Mr. Producer? They would control or have control of a certain percentage of these companies. So the federal government issues mandates, the state governments issue mandates, forcing these companies to teeter. To teeter. And then the government says, but we have a plan. We're going to give you a loan, no interest, low interest, you can pay it back in 412 years, 
but we want a percentage of your company. Is there a single person who is a Levinite out there who thinks that is a good idea? And if that's not backdoor socialism, I don't know what the hell is. Now let me tell you what's going on on Capitol Hill as I speak this Friday night. Washington Examiner, Niall Christian. McConnell, McConnell aims for agreement with Democrats on massive stimulus bill by tonight. Senate Democrats and Republicans say they're eager to pass a third coronavirus economic stimulus bill in a rushed fashion, despite some substantive policy disagreements. I tasked a bipartisan team to reach an agreement by the end of the day, uh, said McConnell. And Senate Republicans on Thursday announced a $1 trillion stimulus plan. The measure includes a plan to help individuals and families below a certain income by sending them direct cash payments. It's not helping people who are unemployed. It's helping families below a certain income. You know what that is? Massive redistribution of wealth. Direct cash payments of $600 to $2,400. $300 billion worth of loans for small businesses to keep people employed and assistance for industries directly threatened by pandemic. And $50 billion in loans for airlines, $150 billion for other eligible businesses, which likely includes cruise ship and hotel industries. Minority leader Chuck Schumer pushed against this, saying it didn't go far enough and it didn't prioritize the right people. Quote, now Senator McConnell's bill is not pro-worker at all. It puts corporations ahead of the people. We need workers first, said Schumer after a Senate meeting. Schumer said that the Republican bill wouldn't give hospitals much money as they face a growing crisis. He added Democrats wanted full unemployment insurance for workers that had been laid off to ensure that workers keep getting money so long as they are unemployed, not just a one-time payment. Now, you understand there's unemployment insurance. It is a state responsibility and the responsibility of the employer and the employee. So Chuck Schumer wants to nationalize all of this and have the federal government as the unemployment payer of last resort. Regarding loads and aids to industries affected by the pandemic, such as airlines and hotels, Schumer said the federal government would not bail them out unless they are worker-friendly. In other words, pro-union. The Democrats don't care about the private sector. The Democrats don't care about corporate America. The Democrats don't care about the hard-working American taxpayer. The Democrats don't care about the debt. They don't care about the Constitution. They intend to use this virus to poison our economy and poison this society with a radical left-wing agenda. I'll be right back. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning. But what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue. That having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. 
Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now, to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com, levinforhillsdale.com. You know, uh, even if we were to find out who actually needs help and figure out wise ways to assist them, I get that. But this isn't that. Now we're in a bidding war. You don't just hand checks to people who are under a certain income level. What does that have to do with anything? But it's not enough for Schumer, see? It's just, it's just appalling what's taking place on Capitol Hill. And honestly, the Democrats are nuts and the Republicans are cowards. But the Horowitz piece was brilliant for its common sense. What are the communities that are mostly affected by this? Target them. You know, when we do military operations, we don't drop atomic bombs on entire countries. Even when we dropped our two atomic bombs, that was it, particular cities, but I'm talking figuratively, of course. You don't blow the whole country off the face of the earth. You hit what you need to hit. The whole country is going to be quarantined. You've got California now where a governor thinks he has the power to tell the people they can't leave their homes unless he says you can leave your home. Of course, Cuomo follows in New York. Of course, the uh, Pritzker in Illinois has put an order out starting tomorrow morning. Uh, And we have governors under pressure to issue these directives, these bans. Even in places where people are utterly unaffected and there's really nothing going on. It's chilling. All right, you want to hear more? I told you some of you aren't going to like this. Here's a piece the other day, fairly recent, by John P.A. Inotis. I hope I pronounced his name properly. He's Professor of Medicine of Epidemiology and Population Health of Biomedical Data Science and of Statistics at Stanford University and co-director of Stanford's Meta Research Innovation Center. Doesn't sound like a slouch to me, does he? To you, Mr. Producer? Here's the title of his piece from two days ago. A fiasco in the making, question mark? As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold, we're making decisions without reliable data. The current coronavirus disease, he writes, COVID-19, he calls it, has been called a -a once-in-a-century pandemic, but it may also be a -a once-in-a-century evidence fiasco. Again, I'm not saying this this isn't a serious problem. I want you to listen to some other people. These aren't kooks. At a time when everyone needs needs better information from disease modelers and governments to people quarantined or just social distancing, a lack of reliable evidence on how many people have been infected with SARS-CoV-2 or who continue to be, become infected, in other words, the virus. Better information is needed to guide decisions and actions of monumental significance and to monitor their impact. Draconian countermeasures have been adopted in many countries. If the pandemic dissipates, either on its own or because of these measures, short-term extreme social distancing and lockdowns may be bearable. How long, though? 
Should measures like these be continued if the pandemic churns across global, the globe unabated? How many policymakers tell if they are doing more good than harm? Vaccines or affordable treatments take many months or even years to develop and test properly. Given such timelines, the consequences of long-term lockdowns are entirely unknown. The data collected so far on how many people are infected and how the epidemic is evolving are utterly unreliable. Given the limited testing to date, some deaths and probably the vast majority of infections due to the virus are missing. We don't know if we are failing to capture infections by a factor of three or 300. Three months after the outbreak emerged, most countries, including the U.S., lack the ability to test a large number of people although we're working on it, I might add, and no countries have reliable data on the prevalence of the virus in a representative random sample of the general population. Now, this guy's an expert. I'm just telling you what he's saying from Stanford. The evidence fiasco creates tremendous uncertainty about the risk of dying from the virus. Reported case fatality rates, like the official 3.4% rate from the World Health Organization, cause horror and are meaningless. Patients who've been tested for the virus are disproportionately those with severe symptoms and bad outcomes. As most health systems have limited testing capacity, selection bias may even worsen in the near future. The one situation where an entire closed population was tested was the Diamond Princess cruise ship and its quarantined passengers, you remember that, off California. The case fatality rate there was 1%. But this was a largely elderly population in which the deaths from the virus is much higher. Projecting the Diamond Princess mortality rate onto the age structure of the U.S. population, the death rate among people infected with the virus would be 0.125%. But since this estimate is based on extremely thin data, there were just seven deaths among the 700 infected passengers and crew, the real death rate could stretch from five times lower to five times higher. That is 0.025% to 0.625%, still under 1%. It's also possible that some of the passengers who were infected might die later, and that tourists may have different frequencies of chronic diseases, a risk factor for whose outcomes with the virus infection, than the, a higher risk than the general population. Adding these extra sources of uncertainty, reasonable estimates for the case fatality ratio in the general U.S. population then vary from 0.05% to 1%. Now that huge range markedly affects how severe the pandemic is and what should be done. A population-wide case fatality rate of 0.05% is lower than seasonal influenza. If that is the true rate, Locking down the world with potentially tremendous social and financial consequences may be totally irrational. And by the way, these damn TV shows and networks, they keep throwing these numbers up there like we're watching a basketball game. Shame on them. They are meaningless. Which is the professor's point. But it gets a lot of hits, a lot of views. It's like an elephant being attacked by a house cat. Frustrated and trying to avoid the cat, the elephant accidentally jumps off a cliff and dies. Could the virus case fatality rate be that low? No, some say, pointing to the high rate in elderly people. 
But even some so-called mild or common cold-type viruses that have been known for decades can have case fatality rates as high as 8% when they infect elderly people in nursing homes. In fact, such so-called mild coronaviruses infect tens of millions of people every year and account for 3 to 11% of the hospitalized in the U.S. with lower respiratory infections each winter. These so-called mild coronaviruses may be implicated in several thousands of deaths every year worldwide, though the vast majority of them are not documented with precise testing. Instead, they are lost as noise among 60 million deaths from various causes every year. Although successful surveillance systems have long existed for influenza, the disease is confirmed by a laboratory in a tiny minority of cases. In the U.S., for example, so far this season, 1,073,976 specimens have been tested, and 222,552, or nearly 21%, have tested positive for influenza. In the same period, the estimated number of influenza-like illnesses is between 36 million and 51 million, with an estimated 22,000 to 55,000 flu deaths. Note the uncertainty about influenza-like illness deaths. A 2.5-fold range corresponding to tens of thousands of deaths. He's saying, look, even now, 22 to 52,000. That's what we know about the flu. Look at the range. And every year, some of these deaths are due to influenza and some to other viruses, like common cold viruses. In an autopsy series that tested for respiratory viruses and specimens from 57 elderly persons who died during the 2016-2017 influenza season. Is this too complicated for everyone, Mr. Producer? Influenza viruses were detected in 18% of the specimens. Well, any kind of respiratory virus was found in 47%. In some people who die from viral respiratory pathogens... More than one virus is found upon autopsy, and bacteria are often superimposed. In other words, he's saying it's a lot more complicated than we're, than we're hearing. Some worry that 68 deaths from the coronavirus in the U.S. as of March 16 will increase exponentially to 680, 6,800, 68,000, 680,000, along with similar catastrophic patterns around the globe. Is that a realistic scenario or bad science fiction? How can we tell at what point such a curve might stop? The most valuable piece of information for answering those questions would be to know the current prevalence of the infection in a random sample of a population and to repeat this exercise at regular time intervals to estimate the incidence of new infections. Sadly, that's information we just don't have. So in the absence of data, prepare for the worst Prepare for the worst reasoning, excuse me, leads to extreme measures of social distancing and lockdown. In other words, he's saying they're taking the worst case scenarios. Unfortunately, we do not know if these measures work. School closures, for example, may reduce transmission rates. They may also backfire if children socialize anyhow. School closure leads children to spend more time with susceptible elderly family members. If children at home disrupt their parents' ability to work and so forth. School closures may also diminish the chances of developing herd immunity in an age group that is spared serious disease. This has been the perspective behind different, a different stance. 
and the UK keeping schools open, at least until I wrote this. The absence of data on the real course of the epidemic. We don't know whether this perspective was brilliant or catastrophic. And he goes on a little bit more. Flattening the curve to avoid overwhelming uh, the health system is conceptually sound in theory. A visual that has become viral in media and social media shows how flattening the curve reduces the volume of the epidemic that is above the threshold of what the health system can handle at any moment. Yet if the health system does become overburdened and overwhelmed, the majority of the extra deaths may not be due to the virus at all, but to other common diseases and conditions, such as heart attacks, strokes, trauma, bleeding, and the like, that are not adequately treated. If the level of the epidemic does overwhelm the health system and extreme measures have only modest effectiveness, then flattening the curve may make things worse. Instead of being overwhelmed during a short, acute phase, the health system will remain overwhelmed for a more protracted period. That's another reason why we need data on the exact level of the epidemic activity. One of the bottom lines is that we don't know how long social distancing measures and lockdowns can be maintained without major consequences to the economy, society, mental health. Unpredictable evolutions may ensure, including financial crises, unrest, civil strife, war, a meltdown of the social fabric. At a minimum, we need unbiased prevalence and incidence data for the evolving infections load to guide decision-making. In the most pessimistic scenario, which I do not espouse, he says, if the new virus infects 60% of the global population and 1% of the infected people die, that will translate into more than 40 million deaths globally, matching the 1918 influential pandemic. And the vast majority of this would be people with limited life expectancies. That's in contrast to 1918, when many of whom died were young. One can only hope that much like 1918, life will continue. Conversely, with lockdowns of months, if not years, life largely stops. Short-term and long-term consequences are entirely unknown. And billions, not just millions of lives, may be eventually at stake. If we decide to jump off the cliff, we need some data to inform us about the rationale of such an action and the chances of landing somewhere safe. John Inatis, Professor of Medicine of Epidemiology, Population Health, Biomedical Data Science and of Statistics at Stanford University and co-director of Stanford's Meta Research Innovation Center. He's saying a lot of what these governors are ordering may be exactly the wrong thing. Earlier, Daniel Horowitz pointed out, why aren't we taking a more focused approach in attacking this illness and in terms of economic growth. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. I've been talking a lot about the four pillars or purposes of the Hillsdale College mission. Learning, character, faith, and freedom. We focus quite a bit on the first pillar of learning. But what about character? Learning the right things to the point where you truly know them is a rigorous business. It isn't possible without strong character. Hillsdale's great president, Larry Arn, and his outstanding faculty at Hillsdale know that intellectual virtue is meaningless without moral virtue. 
that having knowledge doesn't mean much if you don't use what you know to serve the good, however possible. And here's an outstanding fact. Every entering freshman at Hillsdale signs an honor code that reads as follows. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. Through education, the student rises to self-government. Now, to learn more, visit levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com, levinforhillsdale.com. Forty thousand people die a year from car accidents. I've pointed this out myself, and a lot of it has to do with these cafe standards put in place by the government. And those cafe standards were originally put in place in 1970 in response to the OPEC boycott or uh, uh, hoarding of oil to try and uh, harm our economy. They never went away because the government saw a way to control them. So cars are lighter, and so the people inside the cars are not as protected. 40,000 people a year die from car accidents, at least. This was brought up. Dr. Fauci said that that's basically an immoral comparison. What does that have to do with anything? I actually thought it was a very important point that Senator Johnson had brought up. Our government can actually do things, do things now to reduce those number of deaths. If you die from a car accident, you die from this virus. You're dead either way. And everything's being done on this virus, even things that people aren't clear are going to make a difference. Things can be done on the cards. And his point is, I'm, I'm not understanding why we treat one one way and one another way. 40,000 people dying a year in car accidents, is that not an epidemic? Just asking. We had a trucker call here, I think it was two days ago, maybe it was yesterday. That was two days ago. And he was talking about how these states are making it very, very difficult for them to move produce, to move other products around the country. They have these broad shutdowns in their states, including rest stops, including uh, truck stops, where truckers often go to get their food and get something to drink. And so it's becoming a very difficult situation All these governors are being praised for taking serious leadership positions. You know, unlike the president, they just said they're prepared. Shut down. Everybody stay home. I want to get into this a little bit because some of these governors are absolutely irresponsible. I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. Ah, that's wrong. 866-505-4626, our temporary number. Remember, we're working out of different facilities in New York. I'm not in New York, but the uh, team is. 866-505-4626, 866-505-4626. Whatever you do, don't forget, 8 p.m. Eastern Time Sunday. 
Life, Liberty, and Levin on Fox. First half of the program, I'm interviewing the Vice President of the United States. The second half, Dr. Anthony Fauci. You're not going to want to miss it, I don't believe. If you're doing something else while you're, you know, under your desk at home, uh, you, uh, you can always DVR the program. But I hope you'll watch it. I think you'll find it extremely informative. I was talking about our truckers. I don't know what the hell we would do without our truckers. And we talked about this the other day, and we've had some great truckers call the program. And this is Megan Fox at PJ Media. And this unprecedented crisis brought to us by the lying communists in China, the pandemic panic has gone too far. America's truckers, the people we rely on to restock our empty grocery shelves, are being treated like disease vectors. And worse, they've been forgotten. The state of Pennsylvania thought it was a good idea to shut down all the rest stops where truckers sleep. I wonder if the young lady heard it on this program. Including closing the bathrooms until the trucking lobby caught the ear of the president. Thirteen rest stops have been reopened in Pennsylvania. But our truckers are being forced to use porta johns that are far dirtier than the public bathrooms. How is this helping? It's not just rest areas, but restaurants are closing their dining rooms, even in truck stops. Truckers can't go through drive throughs How are they supposed to eat while they're killing themselves to bring us toilet paper and fresh produce? We talked about this the other day. Companies receiving the goods aren't even letting the drivers use their bathrooms. This has to stop. We owe our truckers more consideration than this. Read this thread from a trucker on Twitter and feel ashamed. Here it is. Here's the thread. I'll do my best. I have one eye that doesn't work so well. We can't even use the bathroom. We're subject to temperature monitoring upon entry and exit. We can't even get access to a real bathroom as it is. We have two porta-potties on site to serve 50-plus truckers. With this virus, we're facing unsanitary conditions. He goes on, normally I wouldn't complain. However, it's not just warehouses. Businesses all across the country refuse to give us entry to a restaurant or bathrooms. We're lucky to find a a truck stop with ready-to-go food. I'm getting to the point that I'm going to sit at home. Corporate America clearly doesn't give a blank about my health and well-being. Least local police departments are offering to help us get food. And he goes on. All right. So now you see that these decisions by some of these governors are absolutely stupid. And can you imagine nationalizing all these decisions? That's what I mean. You, you centralize, nationalize these decisions. You don't have the basis for them. You don't have enough information to make these decisions. Now, the left doesn't care. Pelosi doesn't care. Schumer doesn't care. They do this all the time. They do it all the time. Over at Legal Insurrection, a great website, founded and run by my buddy, Professor William Jacobson, he says there, at some point, we're going to have to weigh the risk of a virus against the risk of ripping our society's bonds. I think the economic shutdown infection point comes sometime in May, June at the latest. Beyond that, the center will not hold. And he posts a photo from a reader that was sent to him, a Park Avenue in Manhattan at 5.30 p.m. today. 
the height of rush hour. It was empty. No people, no cars. Says this is a major avenue in the heart of our largest city that in normal times would be jam-packed with cars and taxis and delivery trucks and pedestrians. It was all but deserted due to government-ordered rolling shutdown of the economy to delay the spread of Wuhan coronavirus. Madison Avenue also looked like a ghost town. I'm not sure how long this can go on before things come apart, he says. I'm thinking Los Angeles after the Rodney King verdict and New York during numerous blackouts, but it's more. For now, the food supply is stable, as are the electric grid and water and energy supplies. But should scarcities appear as factories shut down, then the social breakdown will not be limited to big cities. With some large cities limiting arrests and with large-scale prison releases possible to prevent viral outbreaks inside their walls, the old adage that when seconds count the police are only minutes away will seem quaint. The police may be hours away or nowhere to be found. People are stocking up on guns and ammo for a reason. You can't just stop an economy and expect it not to tear at the seams that hold society together. I don't know when the end comes, he writes. I think we're okay for the current 50-day social distancing period. Maybe another 15 days after that, but not for several months. The approaching cash stimulus to people and business assistance will buy a little time. I don't think it's going to buy a lot, but not indefinite. The government cannot bail out an entire economy. At some point, we're going to have to weigh the risk of a virus against the risk of ripping our societal bonds. I think the economic shutdown inflection point comes sometime in May, June at the latest. Beyond that, he says, the center will not hold. And I think that's why you see panic. I think that's why you see people buying toilet paper and paper towels. It has nothing to do with the virus. It's why you see people buying bottled water. It has nothing to do with the virus. Now we're running out of cleansers, trash bags, plastic bags. Nothing to do with the virus. This is why people are hoarding. They're hoarding because they don't see this coming to an end soon based on what they're hearing. And they don't think the center is going to hold either. Maybe they're not going to give it a lot of thought. And you know who else is concerned that the center won't hold, Mr. Producer? The politicians in Washington, which is why they're throwing money at everybody. It's very scary. All right. You can shut that uh, mic now, Mr. Producer. Mr. Producer forgets what buttons he he touches. Um, now, I watched this press conference today, and I think the president is absolutely brilliant in the way he handles this. I really do. His knowledge is enormous, and he's, he's able to move from one issue to another. He's obviously heavily engaged in day-to-day decisions, but the press has during this virus has so exposed itself as being left-wing and in so many respects un-American, destroying the First Amendment and freedom of speech, destroying freedom of the press, that they are adding to the panic. 
and making it far, far more difficult for the people to understand what is taking place. I also think, as mouthpieces for the left and for the Chinese government, it turns out, they're pressuring this administration to do more and more things that fall in the socialist realm. By asking questions like, why aren't you doing more about beds? Why aren't you doing more about ventilators? What do you say to the people who are scared? What are you going to do about what, what are you going to do about the unemployment? What are you going to what? Are, so constantly pushing the administration and the decision makers to take more and more power and make more and more decisions, and to make them rationally if they can. Not rationally, but rationally. That's the push, and it's constant now. You hear Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer; they're not criticized by the press. They're outrageous, irresponsible, fascistic. Statements and policies don't come under any criticism. They're not called dictators or dictators-in-waiting. But let's take a look at this. Today at the White House, NBC's Peter Alexander. This guy is a reprobate. He's a hack. He's not a reporter. And other reporters came to his defense. Of course they do. This is groupthink. It's a pack mentality. And they're all really... Punks. Immature punks. Cut one, go. What do you say the Americans were scared, though? I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who were sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers, and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism, and uh, the same with NBC and Comcast. So I don't call it, I don't call it Comcast, I call it Comcast. Let me just ask for whom you work. Let me just say something. That's really bad reporting. And you ought to get back to reporting instead of sensationalism. Let's see if it works. It might, and it might not. I happen to feel good about it, but who knows? I've been right a lot. Let's see what happens. Now he's talking about this medicine for malaria that's already out there, rheumatoid arthritis and so forth. They're having tremendously positive results from this. But this Peter Alexander, he doesn't want you to think about it. He doesn't want you to know about it. He wants you to doubt the president in this regard. The president is right in this regard. There's numerous reports out there, not just anecdotal. Even though it hasn't gone through, quote-unquote, the testing that the CDC and the NIH... Yeah, we haven't done formal testing. But humans are using it, and it seems to be working. And the president keeps pointing that out, and he's pushing to get this out there. Why do you tell him? And he is a terrible reporter. The guy's a hack. Cut to go. Do you really think, you know, going off on Peter, going off on a network is appropriate when the country is going through something? Now, I want you to keep something in mind. They're talking to the president of the United States. So she feels she has to pick up for Peter. She's going to pick up for Peter. Do you really think it's appropriate when the country's going through something like this? It's more than appropriate. It's compelled Because Peter is putting out a false narrative. The media have been putting out false narratives. The media have been regurgitating. Regurgitating what the Democrats are saying and doing. As I wrote in Unfreedom of the Press, this is who they are. Go ahead. I think uh, Peter is, uh, you know, I've dealt with Peter for a long time. And I think Peter is 
not a good journalist when it comes to fairness. But he's asking for your message to the country. Oh, I think it's a good message because I think that the country has to understand that there is indeed, whether we like it or not, and some of the people in this room won't like it, uh, there's a lot of really great news and great journalism, and there's a lot of fake news out there. And I hear it all, and I see it all, and I understand it all because I'm in the midst of it. So when somebody writes a story or does a story on television, and I know it's false, I know it's fake, and when they say they have 15 sources have said, and I know there's no sources, there's no sources, they just make it up. Uh, I know that, and I call Peter, I call Peter out, but I call other people out too. And you know, this is time to come together. But coming together is much harder when we have dishonest journalists. It's a very important profession that you're in. It's a profession that I think is incredible. I cherish it. But when people are dishonest, they truly do hurt our country. That is beautifully put. And that is exactly what's going on with the Democrat Party press. They are hurting the country. Now, I notice Peter and whoever the lady is take no responsibility for distracting the nation for three years with the Russia hoax, then the impeachment of the president, then the impeachment trial. These very same reporters. Why shouldn't there be witnesses? And why aren't you responding to subpoenas? On and on and on. Right into the beginning of the coronavirus issue. Right into the beginning. Cut three, go. Is the pressure getting to the president here? He seems now, see, this, this is where we go. Chuck Todd, who is a hemorrhoid on the body politic. Chuck Todd wants you to think there's something wrong with the president. You see, it's the pressure on the president. I think Chuck... uh, uh, Almost misspoke there, Mr. Producer. I think Chuck Todd (laughs) is mentally unstable. If he can keep saying this about the president and the people who support the president, then I'm going to say it about him for now on. Chuck Todd is mentally unstable. I really believe he is. He keeps wondering if the pressure is getting to the president, if the president's okay, if the president's... Chuck, now I don't know that you're mentally unstable, Chuck. Let me play his game. I just think it. I think the pressure is getting to you, Chuck, as the moderator of Meet the Depressed. I really do. And that haircut, by the way. Anyway, go ahead. Particularly, I think we saw a great example of it at the end. Dr. Ah, Fauci shut gave- up, you idiot. Why don't you report on news? Why don't you give us information rather than playing games? He's got their Peter Alexander on MSLSD. Chuck Todd and Peter Alexander. You know there's something wrong when so-called reporters are interviewing each other. And, of course, attacking the President of the United States. How about what the president said, schmuck? I mean, Chuck, how about it? I'll be right back. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? 
Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. So the pandemic's going on. The media and the Democrats, one of the same, want to know why the president is doing a whole lot more. Like their favorite left-wing Democrat governors. And what are they discussing today? Themselves. They're offended that the president took on an NBC reporter. Becomes the focal point for CNN, the focal point, of course, for NBC and the other networks. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there's nobody more selfish and infantile and immature than an American reporter. Not all of them, but most of them. They are narcissistic. They are egomaniacs. And they demonstrate this every damn day. The old notion of journalism, we don't really know much about the reporter and the reporter is not part of the story. That's long gone. You get pukes like Chuck Todd. Never really finished college. That's okay. If you're going to go to college, you might want to consider finishing. Okay, but he didn't. But he thinks he's smarter than everybody else. That's the problem. I'm surprised he hasn't brought up climate change yet. That's coming. Will they blame this on climate change? Not the Chinese government, of course. Not the culture of the, of the rural Chinese in these open animal markets... And I'm told by Michael Pillsbury and others who have seen these markets that they are horrific. The way they treat animals, the way animals are piled on top of one another, dogs, cats, koala bears, they eat bats, they eat snakes. It's really quite grotesque. Quite grotesque. They live in each other's fecal matter. The way they're treated is horrific. I'm sure Peter's going to go over there any day now. They treat those animals in those markets, Mr. Producer, almost the way they treat human beings over there in China. If you happen to be a Tibetan or a Muslim or a Christian or just fall out of favor with the government. But don't call it the China virus or the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. No, 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 no. We should call it the Trump virus, you know. That's what we're supposed to call it. I'll be right back. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. It is amazing. So we've spent the first hour and a half, most of it, talking about the economy. Now, we've spent most of this week pointing out what others have refused to address, which is the irresponsible, just 
craziness in terms of Congress and their spending and, and how they're spending this money. It's going to have minimal impact on the economy except drive up the debt. And the Democrats want even worse. And I'm trying to point out that this economy is going to spiral out of control. When you close a business, some of these businesses are not going to reopen. People are going to be ruined. I don't care how many loans you offer them. And the Democrats say any effort to try and ensure that these businesses are able to survive as a result of governors shutting them down is not worth supporting unless they show that they support their workers? Well, you got to stay open if you're going to support your workers and pay them. So the Democrats actually are part of the problem. The left is part of the problem. The media are part of the problem. But it's the other side I'm concerned about. We cannot have medical experts and scientists making economic policy. We just can't. And so there needs to be a more sober look at this. And Mnuchin's not the guy. No offense. I'm not trying to sabotage. I'm not trying to destroy. I'm not trying to upset. He's a liberal Democrat. His perspective is all Wall Street. It's all stock market. Which is okay, but it's a bit myopic. And of course, the Democrats and their agenda is all labor union. It's okay, but it's a little myopic. I don't know how we expect companies to produce more, to find cures and so forth, when we're closing down big chunks of the economy. And you know what's interesting? The president's not doing it. These governors are doing it. California's a damn big state. What's it have, 38 million people, 41 million, whatever it is. Newsom just shut it down. Our financial center is New York City. de Blasio shut it down. New York State. Cuomo just shut it down. Illinois, with the third biggest city. Chicago. The governor there shutting it down in, 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 uh, tomorrow morning. So you have New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, shut down. All the other cities in these huge mega states shut down. You've got other governors shutting businesses down, like in Pennsylvania, that's barely even affected. This is why people are emptying the shelves. I, I, I was thinking about this today. What's wrong with these people grabbing toilet paper and everything? Then it finally got through my thick head. Because they see what's going on around them. The government's shutting down all these businesses. And they're worried. They're not even worried about the virus, per se. They're worried that they're not going to have food. They're worried about the toilet paper. They're worried about essentials. So they're getting them. That's what's going on. Or let me put it more accurately. They're worried about the virus, plus they're worried about the economy. That is, they're worried that they'll get this virus, and the reporting is so bad from the Chuck Todd's, and the Peter Bakers and the other losers, that they don't understand if you're healthy, you're 99% likely to be just fine. That's not getting out. 
That's not getting it. Everybody's not in a nursing home. Everybody's not whatever it is. We need to protect those people. We need to focus on certain counties in certain states where the virus has become quite aggressive. And we can do other things in the rest of the country. But you don't shut down Kansas when you're dealing with Seattle. Now, this economic stimulus package is just another redistribution of wealth package in many respects. Not all of it, but too much of it. That's why much of it won't work, in my opinion. But this is the old school sort of liberal spending that Mnuchin, that's, that's his mindset. Giving money to everybody who earns under a certain amount or over a certain amount or has a certain number of kids. What does that have to do with targeting funds properly to people who are affected? I am very, very concerned we're going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy here of huge unemployment. Now, you're going to have some of that anyway as a result of this. But the issue is how long can this go on? You have a lot of governors who are ideologues. This guy, Governor Wolf of Pennsylvania, he's an idiot. The governor of New Jersey is an idiot. Cuomo's an idiot. And yet he's being praised. Oh, my God, he's taking strong action. What's going on? Oh, the, the government needs, the federal government needs to make more beds. When I said to you the other day, New York was the first state to adopt the certificate of need law. And New York is the one that has been limiting beds. New York's the one that's been limiting all these devices and mechanical mechanisms and so forth that people use for health. We're, we're, we're schizophrenic here. We're demanding progress from the private sector while we're shutting down big chunks of the private sector. American ingenuity is still winning out on drugs and so forth and so on. But my concern is there's going to be a point at which we tank the economy. And it's going to be much worse than any recession any of you have ever lived through. And this is where the Democrats will move politically hard for the agenda that you heard from Bernie Sanders and you hear from Joe Biden. And by the way, you never hear from Joe Biden now because he doesn't have anything to say, really. I've been talking about this throughout the week, but today I decided, you know, let me spend a lot more time on this. Because it's very worrisome. You've got the inertia on Capitol Hill. The only time they act is when they deficit spend in massive amounts and pay off their various constituent groups. Or the Republicans have to make a deal with the Democrats and blow six, seven hundred million, billion dollars in order to get two, three, four hundred billion to those who, are, who should be targeted for need. Here's Gavin Newsom today. At his press conference, cut seven, Mr. Producer, go. A state as large as ours, a nation state, uh, is many parts. But at the end of the day, we're one body. There's a mutuality and there's a recognition of our interdependence that requires of this moment that we direct a statewide order for people to stay at home. That directive goes into force and effect this evening. Incredible. Shocking. 
He doesn't pick the metropolitan areas because that's where his strength is. Why would you pick the rural areas of California, the uh, breadbasket of California, where there's none of this going on? Is he going to shut down the whole state with a few exceptions? And then Andrew Cuomo says, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to let him be the only one who does it. I'm a great leader, too. Cut eight. Go. Uh, on the businesses, on the valve, we reduced it to 50% of the workforce. We then reduced it to 75% of the workforce must stay home. And today we're bringing it to 100% of the workforce uh, must stay home. 100% These of the workforce. Okay, Mr. Producer. 100% of the workforce must stay home. All you non-essential workers in non-essential services. What is that? If they were non-essential, they wouldn't exist. Go ahead. Services, essential services have to continue to function. Grocery stores need food. Pharmacies need drugs. I don't think they understand how the economy works. You could say something's not essential, and yet it's essential in the supply chain. It becomes essential in the supply chain. For instance, what about mechanics? Are they essential? Well, you know what? A lot of trucks can't move without mechanics. Seems pretty essential to me. What about tire stores? You know, men and women who put tires on 18-wheelers and on your vehicles, are they essential? Seems pretty essential to me. What about the oil workers? that produce the fuel? On and on. Grocery stores. Are the janitors who work at the grocery stores at night to keep them clean? Are they essential? Are they essential? How about the people who make the plastic? Or the saran, or whatever you want to call it. That you wrap the meat in, you wrap the chicken in. Are they essential? How about the people who are loggers, who make the paper necessary to wipe your butt and dry your face? Are they essential? I think they need to give us a list of who's not essential. Go ahead. Uh, your internet has to continue to work. The water has to turn on when you turn the faucet. So there are essential services that will continue to function, but 100% of the workforce. And when I talk about the most drastic action we can take, oh this is the most drastic action we yes, can take. Yes, it is. These little dictatorial acts, I'm sorry, and I'm in the minority, are big trouble. This isn't focused toward anything. This isn't focused toward a particular community. This is statewide in New York. Including all the areas outside of New York City. Incredible. You know, online shopping is supposed to be easy. So why is finding coupon codes that actually work so hard? This is very important, especially now. With Honey, it doesn't have to be. Honey is the free online shopping tool that automatically finds the best promo codes and applies them to your cart. Many of you are shopping online now. You need to listen. Just download Honey to your computer and shop on all your favorite websites like normal. And when you check out, just click the little Apply Coupons button that pops up. Wait a few seconds for Honey to scan its database of all the working coupons on the web, then watch your price drop. 
Honeyworks on nearly every online store, including Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Macy's, Etsy, and more. Honey has found over $2 billion in savings. That's why it has over 100,000 five-star reviews on the Google Chrome store. Not using Honey is literally passing up free money. Plus, it's free to use and installs in just a few seconds. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash Levin. Joinhoney.com slash L-E-V-I-N. Joinhoney.com slash Levin. We'll be right back. Mark Levin. I know you appreciate it or you wouldn't be here, but it was very important, I feel, this week and especially tonight, to have some pushback against the spending Democrats and Republicans, against the media, and against, I guess, some of the administration like Mnuchin, on where they're taking this economy. I felt it was very important to spend time on this throughout the week. And especially tonight. So you will hear the backbenchers tonight on radio and TV. Some of them at least acknowledge that this is a problem. And it's about damn time. We cannot allow liberal Democrats like Mnuchin focus solely on the stock market. And I believe in the stock market. But that can't be the only focus. It can't be the only focus. We can't allow the Schumers and Pelosi's. And look, Mitch McConnell when it comes to spending is really no better than most of them. And all the Republicans going along and some of the president's advisors saying, you got to go big, you got to go big, you got to go big. Well, we've gone big. You know, this is on them. And we won't forget it. When you abandon the private market, the private sector, you're abandoning the American people. The American people want to take on this virus. But when governors are telling them to sit home in their basements and be productive with, you know, adult coloring books and, I guess, watching TV and whatever it is they expect you to do, uh, that makes it difficult. The reason why people are hoarding, I slowly but finally figured it out, is because they have figured out that if these policies continue in Washington, D.C., led by the Democrats, led by Mnuchin, led by spending Republicans, this is not going to end economically. This is not going to end. Socialism doesn't create wealth. Socialism doesn't create jobs. It creates economic dislocation. And at every turn, when the Republicans are going big, quote-unquote, The Democrats say they're not going big enough or they're selling out to business, you know, like little restaurants, little businesses that employ people, little people who own businesses because they're bought and paid for by their various constituent groups. Now, you'd pay off your IRS debt if you could, but you can't, right? Because you don't have the money, especially now. Now you're asking this important question. When is the day the IRS shows up at my work, garnishes my wages, uh, seizes my bank accounts, maybe even my home? Well, that day might be right around the corner. Don't be fooled. 
by what's taking place. The IRS is still working. It still has thousands of employees. Let me suggest a way to end your IRS nightmare. Call Optima Tax Relief, America's most trusted tax resolution firm. They're experts in the Fresh Start Initiative, a powerful IRS program that could save you thousands if you qualify. In fact, Optima has resolved over $1 billion of tax debt for people just like you. Get the peace of mind that comes when you have Optima on your side, standing between you and the IRS, fighting to help stop aggressive collection actions and helping to protect your assets. Don't wait. Put your IRS worries to rest. Call 800-499-6300. 800-499-6300. That's 800-499-6300. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, you can visit OptimaTaxRelief.com, but I recommend calling them immediately. 800-499-6300. What a wonderful, wonderful group. All right, fellas. Do we have an excellent caller to whom I should speak? And who is that? WPHT, Dave in Pottstown, a place I know very, very well. Nice little town. How are you, Dave? Hey, Mark. I love your spirit. Um, I, my, I'm 66. I'm on a fixed income. Mm-hmm. The other day I got uh, property taxes, um, local taxes. Right. So my question is, I, I haven't heard anything at all about them suspending these, uh, or not prop, prop, uh, yeah, um, real estate taxes. Well, why would they suspend tax- real estate taxes? Well, if that goes to your cops, that goes to the firefighters, that goes to the trash pickup, it goes to your street. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it's all it, instead of uh, loading it into the redistrib- redistribution. Well, property taxes, local property taxes, have nothing to do with this. Well, it's all tied together, I think. No, but, I don't uh, think it is. I mean, on the one hand, we want the government to do everything. On the other hand, we don't even want to pay property taxes. Now, you may have confiscatory property taxes. I lived in Pennsylvania a long time. You actually have a very low flat income tax. And for most of Pennsylvania, the property taxes are pretty decent compared to other states. But I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. Eliminate property taxes? I'm not. Well, then when you call 911, who the hell is going to show up? I'll be right back. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, this final hour of the podcast is sponsored exclusively by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we care about, faith, family, and freedom. Thank you for listening, and please support AMAC. And you can become a member at amac.us slash join. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. Oh, that's wrong again. Sorry. 866-505. 4626. I'll never get it right. 866-505-4626. Don't forget our podcast on marklevinshow.com. You go over there, marklevinshow.com. 
you click on the audio rewind. It's the middle of the top of the homepage right there when you get there. Take you to the podcast page, and then you can pick your podcast platform. Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Stitcher. You can take us anywhere. Or you can listen to this radio show while you're hunkered down, too. But a lot of truckers like our podcast, too. You can listen to us again, marklevinshow.com. You go to the webpage. You click on the audio rewind button. It's the middle of the top of the home page. It takes you to the podcast page. There's three clicks. That's it. And then you click on which podcast platform you want. They're all very good. Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Then you're set. Then you'll never miss the show, regardless of preemptions, regardless of tape delays, whatever it is. Early in the program, I told you I would mention these senators who seem to do pretty well. Seem to know when to sell their stock. I don't throw them all in the same basket, but let's take a look. Dianne Feinstein and three Senate colleagues sold off stocks before the coronavirus crash. And this is from our friends at Fox News. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California and three of her Senate colleagues reported selling off stocks worth millions of dollars in the days before the coronavirus outbreak crashed the market, according to numerous reports. The data is listed on a U.S. Senate website containing financial disclosures from Senate members. So you have a number of organizations, websites, so forth, who look at these financial disclosure forms, and this popped up. Feinstein, who serves as the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and her husband sold between $1.5 million and $6 million in stock in California biotech company Allergen Therapeutics between January 31 and February 18, reported the New York Times. Feinstein defended herself in a series of tweets today, saying she has no control over her assets and the stocks in question were her husband's transaction. She has pulled this this uh, lie repeatedly. She and her husband have invested in the decades past heavily in red China. Well, I'm not really involved in that. You know, I, my, uh, my assets are in a blind trust. Really, uh, my husband's in charge of all the financial decisions. So they never speak. When they're together, over dinner, anyway, they never speak about their investments or what they're going to do. Isn't that fascinating? I don't believe it for two seconds. A woman who wanted to remove the President of the United States over a simple phone call. During my Senate career, she says, I've held all assets in a blind trust of which I have no control. That's different than saying you don't know anything about your finances. Her husband has control. So this is the game. I have no control formally, but I can tell my husband whatever I want to. Reports that I sold any assets are incorrect, as are reports that I was at January 24 briefing on coronavirus, which I was unable to attend. Under Senate rules, I report my husband's financial transactions. I have no input into his decisions. My husband in January and February sold shares of a cancer therapy company. The company is unrelated to any work on the coronavirus, and the sale was unrelated to the situation. No, but the stock market has crashed. Nobody's talking about the direct relationship with respect to you and your specific stock. When questioned by the newspaper, a spokesman for the Democrat from San Francisco also said Feinstein wasn't directly involved in the sale. Okay, so you see the, uh, the rope-a-dope that she plays. 
Reports identified the three other senators, <clears throat> excuse me, as Richard Burr of North Carolina, Kelly Loeffler of Georgia, and James Inhofe of, of Oklahoma. Burt, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, used more than 30 transactions to dump $628,000 and $1.72 million, excuse me, between $628,000 and $1.72 million on February 13, according to ProPublica, a.k.a. ProPubica. The report said the transactions involved a significant percentage of the senator's holdings and took place about a week before the impact of the virus outbreak sent stock prices plunging to the point where gains made during President Trump's term in office were largely enraged. <clears throat> Quote, Senator Burr filed a financial disclosure form for personal transactions made several weeks before the U.S. and financial markets showed signs of volatility due to the growing coronavirus outbreak, a Burr spokesman said. As the situation continues to evolve daily, he's been deeply concerned by the steep and sudden toll this pandemic is taking on our economy. And on Friday today, the senator tweeted an updated statement saying he relied on public news reports to guide his decision on the sale. Still, he said he's asked for a Senate Ethics Committee to review his own actions. Burr was an author of the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act, a law that helps determine the federal response to situations such as the coronavirus outbreak. His office would not comment on what kind of information he might have received about the virus prior to his stock sales. NPR reported that Burr made uh, ominous comments about the coronavirus behind closed doors last month. There's one thing that I can tell you about this. He said it's much more aggressive. and it's. You know what's interesting, Mr. Producer? This entire article has an enormous amount of excellent research in it. Let's see who wrote this article. Uh, Don Calicchio, or Calico, for Fox News. This poor son of a gun's been ripped off all day and night. People have been using his research, what he's written, the audio and so forth, on radio and TV without giving this guy any credit. So I'll give him credit. So NPR reported that Burr made ominous comments about the coronavirus behind closed doors, and he play, he has there at a link the audio. Loeffler was appointed to the Senate in December by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp after incumbent Senator Johnny Isaacs resigned because of health issues, despite allies of President Trump having urged Kemp to select Representative Doug Collins instead. Loeffler and her husband, Jeffrey uh, Sprechter, Chairman of the New York Stock Exchange sold stock on January 24, the same day she sat in on a briefing from two members of Trump's coronavirus task force, the Daily Beast reported. Between that day and February 14, the couple sold stock worth a total of between 1.2 and 3.1 million, the report said. In addition to the sales, they also purchased stock in a maker of software that helps people work at home. I mean, that's just a little too coincidental, isn't it? Just before millions of Americans were forced to leave their offices because of the outbreak, the report said. Loeffler slammed the Daily Beast report as ridiculous and baseless attack in a pair of late-night tweets. She said, it's a ridiculous and baseless attack. I, I do not make investment decisions for my portfolio. Investment decisions are made by multiple third-party advisors without my or my husband's knowledge or involvement. 
as confirmed in the periodic transaction report to the Senate Ethics, I was informed of these purchases and sales of February 16th, three weeks after they were made. In an interview Friday with Fox News' Ed Henry, she again said any claim of insider trading is absolutely false. And she added, I'm not involved in the decisions of buying and selling while saying she'd cooperate if any investigation is launched. Jim Inhofe sold as much as 400000 in stock all on January 27. Companies such as PayPal, Apple, and real estate company Brookfield Asset Management, the New York Times reported. In a written statement, Inhofe pushed back by saying he was not a late January he was not at a late January briefing, further does not have involvement in investment choices. You know, when you go through this, ladies and gentlemen, it is difficult to see how Loeffler can be held responsible for anything. You agree with me, Mr. Producer? They had a third party handling their their finances. Unless it can be shown that she had some influence. Uh <clears throat> In the case of uh, Inhofe, he says he wasn't at the briefing. So he didn't get any quote-unquote inside information. So you can't really hold him to account for anything uh, particularly notorious. I'm just being honest with you guys. In the case of Dianne Feinstein, it's unbelievable what she's saying. Her husband handles the trust, so she doesn't know what's going on. That's not a third party. She says she wasn't at the briefing. But I don't believe when she says that she doesn't know what's happening to her finances. She says this all the time, that these decisions are made by her husband. But I think Richard Burr has the most explaining to do. He has the most explaining to do. He's not only at the briefing, he's the chairman of that intelligence committee. And maybe it's perfectly... Understandable. I'm not like other hosts who are going to jump to hard conclusions here. But some of it looks very, very sleazy. That is for sure. I'll be right back. Mark AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead, A-M-A-C dot U-S. Now, we've talked a little bit about this, but I like the way Rich Lowry at National Review talks about it. Only the crooks can say this. Hmm. Only the crooks can save us now? A specter haunts progressive America. The possibility that a company might make too much money solving the world's coronavirus problem. 
At the last Democrat debate, Bernie Sanders called the leaders of the pharmaceutical industry a bunch of crooks who are telling themselves in the midst of the epidemic, wow, what an opportunity to make a fortune. Op-eds have sprung up, warning, warning, drug companies will make a killing from the coronavirus, the New York Times, and how big pharma will profit from the coronavirus, the intercept. These are all left-wing kook operations, as you know. This would seem the least of our problems right now, but the pharmaceutical industry is such a boogeyman that it gets roundly attacked even while racing to provide a boon to public health, that is, to save people. Bernie's view that drug company executives are... And it's not just Bernie's view. We got these crazy-ass populist nudniks who would trash our companies every bit as much as Bernie Sanders. And I've talked about this before. They don't believe in capitalism. They don't believe in free markets. They believe in shooting from the hip, just like the left. Bernie's view that drug company executives are crooks betrays his Marxoid belief that profit is a form of theft. Of course, even people who aren't socialists are scourges of the industry. Pharma brought much of this on itself, he says, with the opioid debacle, yet these companies routinely create medical miracles. Yes, they make money doing it, but the profit motive is the reason they exist in the first place. There's a reason we introduce more new therapies than any country in the world. When faced with what's been called a -a once-in-a-generation pathogen, would we rather have a robust commercial drug industry or not? Brilliant, creative people scattered throughout companies and universities working to be the first to a solution or not? Investors looking to back promising research or not? If your answer to any of these questions is no, you're probably a socialist, a populist, firing at the wrong targets, or someone incapable of doing basic cost-benefit calculations. As Chris Pope of the Manhattan Institute notes, if a new drug, even an expensive one, obviates hospital stays and physician care, it can reduce health care costs over time. In fact, it can reduce it massively. Consider the current crisis, the costs of the medieval methods we're using to try to control the coronavirus are unimaginably high, shutting down swaths of the economy and throwing millions of people out of work. Gross domestic product could drop 10% or more this quarter. What would we pay for a vaccine to render all this needless? Just imagine what you'd have. Even if it were a trillion dollars, the price of the Trump proposed stimulus package, it would be a bargain. That said, the price for a vaccine probably won't be exorbitant. The nightmare stories of ungodly expensive treatments usually involve drugs for very rare diseases, affecting a very small number of people. This is different. There's a vast pool of people who will want the coronavirus vaccine. The overall picture of prescription drugs is more complicated than advertised. One new drug, excuse me, once new drugs come off patent, cheaper generic drugs arrive. This is why per capita spending on traditional drugs has been declining. As for patients, the point of them is, as the Constitution puts it, to promote the progress of science and useful arts. They ensure that companies get the benefit of research that is expensive and risky, even in the best circumstance. After perhaps spending $2 billion on research, a company may wait a decade for the FDA to approve it. If a company doesn't have a period of protection for its intellectual property, when it can reap the, uh, the market benefits, much of this research would just dry up. And who's going to step in and fill the gap? Who's going to create the new drugs? Who's going to invent them? Where are they going to come from? 
It's a marvel that the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases is already working with a Cambridge, Massachusetts company, Moderna, on a vaccine trial. This is a model of public-private cooperation. Anyone who will want to subtract Moderna from the process because it stands to profit is an ideological zealot heedless of public health. This crisis brings home the incalculable value of a world-class pharmaceutical sector. We can continue to shelter in place or hope that the crooks, so-called, pursuing breakthrough drugs and treatments make the current disruptions in our national life completely unnecessary. Excellent piece by Rich Lowry. I give credit where credit is due, when it's due, in my opinion. And I also give credit whether I agree with something or disagree with something. If I read somebody's piece or use their information. We've talked about this before, how the pharmaceutical companies are under constant attack. For instance, before all this happened, you heard people in the administration at HHS, you heard people in the Democrat Party, of course you heard left, leftists and people in left-wing groups saying what? We shouldn't pay any more for a drug than they do overseas for generics. But if the drug is invented by a pharmaceutical company in America, and they've spent 10 or 15 years developing it, and they've spent $2 billion on it, they have to make money back, or they're not going to invest in this. And their investors are not going to invest in drugs. They'll invest in something else. So you will destroy that industry. The fact that other countries steal it effectively and make knockoff drugs is not something to be copied any more than it is on any other patent. I know, I'm uh, talking to myself. I even know the vast majority of you disagree with me. I see people go to the pharmacy. I step far enough away, but I can hear them. They'll get four or five drugs. Maybe they'll pay $70, $112, and they're complaining. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's unbelievable. Some people will buy for a family of four. That's what they'll spend on dinner. Or they'll spend uh, far more than that on God knows what. If you're negotiating the price of a car, $100 here, that doesn't even matter. Price of a house. And here you're getting drugs that you need. Maybe you have high blood pressure. Maybe you have diabetes. Maybe you have this. Maybe you have that. Most people don't even know where they come from or how they're developed. or They just know they're there. And apparently whatever you have to pay after the deductible is too much no matter what. Unless it's free. Sorry, I'm getting cynical and disgusted. I'll be right back. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest-growing organizations in America. Now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. 
Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. I want you to hear what's going on out there and keep something in mind. These news networks, and that's what they claim to be, are allowing this type of thing to be aired on the networks. And that tells me they believe it. And they're doing enormous damage to this nation. Comcast, which owns NBC and MSNBC. And the morning schmo, who is a lightweight, low IQ buffoon, has Mayor Bill DeCamio on. Now listen to this. Cut 14, go. And again, Mika, what is driving me crazy, the military, I, I know the quality and the devotion of the United States military. If they got the order this hour to mobilize and get resources to the places in this country that are suffering, they would give it their all. And they have the best logistical capacity of any organization in America. No one doubts that. They have an extraordinary uh, group of medical personnel and, and material and supplies that they could put on the ground. They know how to do it in a war. I assure you could, they could do it in their own country. But the order has not been given by the commander-in-chief because he's not acting like a commander-in-chief. He doesn't know how. And he should get the hell out of the way and let the military do its job. Unbelievable. See, the leftists always come down to, in the end, some kind of fascist agenda. He should get the hell out of the way and let the military do its job? Unbelievable. Just, just think about this. They're shutting down cities, shutting down states. They want to bring out the military. Now, with all due respect, I, I'm looking at these numbers they keep throwing at us. Even if you believe that's the sort of thing the government should do, why would you do it now? Bring out the military? What do you, what'd you have the military do? Unfriggin' believable. It's scary out there. Then we have somebody by the name of Andre Perry, an economist on MSNBC today. Now listen to this one. Ali Velshi, whoever the hell that is, and uh, he's apparently the host. Go ahead. Why can't we find that money? We ask, we endlessly ask candidates how they're going to pay for their, their plans to uh, fix income inequality and fix wealth inequality. Uh, there is apparently money to be found when, when the financial markets are going bad. Yeah, it's funny how when, um, when white folks are suffering, we find a way to deliver and cut checks. Ah, um, uh, for- there you go. See, these are checks for white folks. So one idiot wants to call out the military, and the other idiot views this as a racist thing. It's just, and it's on the same network, MSNBC, which obviously hates America. The idiot Phil Griffin, who runs that network, and the idiot that's his boss, Andrew Lack, have destroyed these news entities. Destroyed them. This is how sick it is out there. Let's go to Dennis in Sandy, Utah, on the Mark Levin app. Go ahead. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. I appreciate the call, Mark. I, I didn't you call you. Yesterday. You called me. I'm, you're right. And I guess All right, let's get it straight. Go, go, go. <laughs> I heard you talk about the iron fist of government several times, and I agree that's bad. What do you think about the iron fist of government controlling our prescription drug supply? Isn't that good, would you say, just to educate me because I need it? 
Okay, who would be in charge of it exactly? That's my pro. Well, the private sector, but just make no, 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 no. no. You said no, no, no. You said government control. That's not the private sector. Who would run it? Oh, right. I just mean government mandating not to build their have their drugs manufactured in China using the iron fist. Well, I, I've talked about this. That's a different issue. I think the government should not mandate that. I think the government should provide the uh, the incentive for these companies to invest in America rather than disincentives. And so what you can do through the tax system, the regulatory system, the labor system and all the environmental system and all these other rules that push companies overseas that the left loves, that the bureaucracy loves, that Republicans are, are uh, fearful of undoing, bring the investment back into the United States. That's what you need to do. They'll do it. Well, you, and by, and by the way, I think the Chinese now, <laughs> I think the Chinese have done it for us. Because one of the things China does not have, among many, that we have in America is a rule of law. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And if you're a company in China, well, China can do whatever the hell it wants with you. And so uh, I would think at this point, American companies that invest further or don't leave China are out of their friggin' minds, and their stockholders and shareholders ought to do something about it. But I I'm really get tired of our government talking about these companies go overseas, they need to produce in America. Well, why are they overseas? Because you make it so damn expensive, that's why. You got so many rules and investigators and assistant U.S. attorneys and uh, uh, antitrust divisions and this, that, and the other. It's, it, it gets harder and harder and harder. One of the things the president did, and here's the evidence, in order to find a vaccine and treatments and so forth, what has he done? He's pulled back heavily on regulations. He has ordered the FDA and the other uh, alphabet soup out there to, to allow these companies to get their drugs approved more quickly. And to the president's credit, he, he also has in place a law that he pushed that allows individuals and groups of individuals, I take it, uh, to use medicines, you know, as a last resort. If you're facing death, you're, you're, you know, you might be willing to try things that other people may not. So um, really, the government has to get out of the way. And if it's going to get in the way, it ought to be creating uh, incentives, not disincentives. Anyway, that's my view, Dennis. You educated me once again, and well, thank you. And what do you think about naming uh, Joe Biden Coma Joe's? <laughs> not bad. All right, thank you. Thank you, my friend. Hasn't he had a brain surgery once or twice? So I couldn't use that phrase. I'd be attacked, I guess. And interestingly, if a Republican had brain surgery, they'd be making jokes, the comics at night, the hosts on CNN and MSLSD and their, and their so-called contributors all be making fun if it was a Republican who had brain surgery. You know, hey, they must have left the good part on the floor, you know, stuff like that. We don't do that here. I don't believe in that. But I do say the guy definitely has a mental deficiency. The result of the purpose, excuse me, the, the, the cause of which I don't know could be just... Old age, I don't know. But what I do know is he's not qualified to be president. Let's continue, shall we? Dave, Ontario, California, 870 The Answer, the great KRLA, where we are live and national. Go right ahead. Yes, Hello. Mr. Mark. Yes, sir. David. Yes, sir. I'm calling about the uh, rates that are being slashed on truck drivers right now. 
It's okay. uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. We can't even make a living and draw a paycheck. What are they doing? I called on a load uh, day before yesterday to put in a bid. The person told me it was going to be 76 cents a mile, and I better get used to it. And uh, I can't I survive. On- why is that happening? I'm not, I'm, tr- I'm not familiar with this market. Tell me what's going on. The shippers are working overtime. They're putting out product. They're not dropping their prices, but they're dropping their shipping prices. The brokers are seeing the demand. They're getting more on these dollars than we are. Uh, we're being shot like fish in a barrel. It's terrible. Well, all I can say is I don't quite understand it all, but they better watch out for you guys because we don't eat. We don't wipe our butts. We don't get bottled water, but for our truckers. And they need to be treated with respect, and they need to be able to make a living, and they need to have rest areas that are open and truck stops that are open. And these moronic mayors, many of whom come out of Ivy League schools or law schools or are just stupid, these governors, they better get their act together. Thank you for your call, Dave. I was totally unfamiliar with that. Let's go to Sue Haymarket, Virginia, the great WMAL. Go right ahead. Um, I'm Sue in Haymarket. Think that this yes, is all are. Chinese. Yes, you think are, Sue in Haymarket. A, this is a Chinese attempt to down our economy. Don't trust that there's no stats coming out of Russia, um, that Italy... Wait, 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 wait. This is an interesting point. We haven't heard anything about Russia, have we? No. And, you ha- don't, and Italy, as far as when they close their borders... Chinese were in there, and so what I think is that China is manipulating <clears throat> or even maybe passing the germs in there. I have my theories about I, the I, I don't think they're purposely doing it. I think what they did resulted in it, in my view. I'll give you an example, and thank you very much, Sue and Haymarket. I'll give you a good example of this um, when it comes to northern Italy. Uh, There's a piece in rebellionresearch.com. Italy has been devastated by the virus with an aging population that is seven to eight years older on average than in the United States. In a second-tier healthcare system, Italy was not anywhere near prepared to deal with this pandemic. The spread in Italy has been fierce and unrelenting. The Atlantic magazine writes of Italy's policy with regard to the coronavirus. Those who are too old to have a high likelihood of recovery or have too low a number of life years left, even if they should survive, will be left to die. Why has Italy suffered so much? Well, they talk about northern Italy and Wuhan. There was an enormous amount, an enormous amount of of Chinese in northern Italy. And because the Chinese kept the secret, Italy got hit hard, particularly northern Italy. I'll be right back. Mark Levin. AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens, is one of the fastest-growing organizations in America, now over 2 million conservative members strong, and I'm one of them. AMAC believes in and stands up for the values that we constitutional conservatives care about. More than talk, AMAC fights. A full-time presence in Washington, AMAC pushes back against reckless spending, disasters like Medicare for All, and the expanding reach of the federal government. And beyond advocacy, joining AMAC gives you access to a wealth of benefits and discounts, including special member-only rates on car insurance, travel discounts, cell phone plans, and a hell of a lot more. 
And if that's not enough, you'll get AMAC's bi-monthly magazine full of insightful articles on issues that matter to most of us, we conservatives. As I said, I'm an AMAC member, and you should be too. Join today at amac.us. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S. Stop supporting the liberal agenda that the other 50-plus organization has been pushing for. Join AMAC instead. A-M-A-C dot U-S. All right, here's what I have faith in. You, Levinites, you, the American people, this country, we have to protect it through pandemics, epidemics, wars, you name it. There are hucksters on TV, hucksters on radio, hucksters in government. They all have their own agendas. Just stick with the truth and stick with liberty. Now, America, in honor of you,
comes to an end. The weekend begins now. Hang in there, America. Hang in there, each and every one of you. Use common sense, but don't freak out. Why not take some time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time Sunday, and watch Life, Liberty, Levin on Fox. You're going to love it. If you don't want to watch it live, DVR it. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, emergency personnel, our truckers, all the doctors, all the people, nurses who are helping us. God bless you. Good night, my precious dogs, and good night, Dad, good night, Mom, and good night, Leo. God bless. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.